Hello again, and welcome to another edition of the New Dominion Podcast. I'm your co-host, Sean Kenny. Sitting opposite me is not Marty Davis. Marty Davis is covering the Durant-Griffin debate uh, held at Mary Washington tonight. I, I get Megan Samples who, from Curitiba Arts Cafe, Art and Cafe. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing tonight? I, I'm fantastic, because this is, this is yeah, it's, I mean, unfortunately, we don't have Marty here, um, you know, because he's out there doing God's work, but, uh, you know, but this is, it's been a good week. Fall's finally here. Yes. Which is good. I'm really sick and tired of 90 degree heat and 90 degree humidity. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm not so much ready for the pumpkin spice, but definitely ready for, for fall and everything else and for campaign season to be over. Yes. Yeah. I would say everyone around will echo that. <laughs> I think I we're all, all ready and definitely glad that the weather's kind of broken finally. It's nice not to be a million billion degrees outside. Indeed. So. Yeah. 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 So we're going to kick off straight into it. Sitting opposite of myself is former delegate Joshua Cole, who is you know a man of many talents, certainly one of Fredericksburg's most uh, entertaining and popular uh, political figures and public figures, um, and a man with a good soul, Josh. Great to have you on the show. I am so glad to be here. Thank you. <laughs> great, great. So, so we're going to kick this off. Obviously, former delegate is sort of a you know it's a rare title indeed. You're jumping right back into it after having seen the funny funny farm in Richmond. Um, there's a new GAB waiting for the next delegates. Um, I think Paul Nardo just put out the email saying, "Hey, let's go take the grand tour if you want to." Um, having experienced Richmond before, why on God's green earth would you want to go back and represent the good people of the city of Fredericksburg? Yeah, that's. Uh, so I actually loved the work that I was doing. Um, I was actually having a conversation with one of my staffers. I said, don't you ever hate waking up? And it was like, oh, I got to go to work. And you have to pull yourself out of the bed. The entire time I was serving in Richmond, whether if it was a delegate or the chief of staff, I never had that problem. I loved waking up in the morning. I loved going down uh, to, well, at that time, the Pocahontas building because I wasn't right. in the <laughs> But I got to just see so many different people from the Commonwealth, whether they were coming down from Fredericksburg or coming from well over, just hearing their stories. And even when I was back home after session, just talking to people about, oh, we appreciate that this passed because this changed, this worked out this way. And I really loved hearing stories of people saying this impacted our lives for the better. Um, and that's why I'm running again, because I just genuinely in love doing that work. <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. So so obviously it's one of those things, like in Washington, you're like one of 435 or one of 100 senators, right? It, it, representatives don't really do a whole lot other than raise money for the reelect. Um, boards of supervisors, city councils, like most of what they end up doing is just locked in because federal state mandates, what have you. They can really only, like they argue over how to fund these things, but we really don't get to set much of a direction. Richmond's a different game altogether, right? So to Tell me this. So, so Delegate Cole gets gets elected, you know, reelected. I don't know. What would that be? Re sort of kind of, kind of like the returning returns maybe um, to Richmond. What are the first three things you're going to do as a delegate? What are you, what are you knocking out of the box early, regardless as to whether or not the Democrats are in the minority or the majority? Yeah. So looking at our region as a whole, we definitely have to tackle some of our transportation issues. Um, and so I really want to make sure we get a regional transportation authority so that we can have our funds in this region, stay in this region. And when we go to the table with smart scale, which the governor is about to change how that project goes, um, we'll be able to get projects done and we won't, you know, we're like the third 
fastest growing area in the state, but number five when it comes for transportation funding. So that's prime objective. Um, we know all throughout the United States that women's reproductive choices are coming under attack. So I definitely want to make sure that we are protect, protecting women's reproductive choices and then making sure that our schools and our educators are fully funded. Um, and I believe that Governor Youngkin will be able to work with us. Let's just say, hey, we have a happy day and we get control of the House and the Senate. I think he will be willing to work with us to fund our public schools and our educators. And I'm really looking forward to that. Good stuff. So, so, so obviously, you know, so transportation, abortion, schools seems to be the the, the magic trio. Well, let's say the Democrats don't get the majority in the House of Delegates, or like you're kind of sitting there, truly minority status, right? The Republicans will have the run of the the House, they'll have the run of the Senate. Uh, maybe Winsome Sears is the signing vote in the 2020 Senate, and then Youngkin sits on the throne, and then is running for POTUS um, or whatever he imagines he's running for. What what do you do in that kind of condition where it's like you still have your priorities, right? Um, um, you still have your wants, but you're now working in a condition where you know the Republicans can pretty much do what they want and as they please. Um, how do you how do you t- and how do you tackle that? Well, I think one of the things that's very much that we have to focus on is compromise. Um, and point blank period. Of, I know people are seeing all the commercials. Josh Cole is this crazy radical, but I have a history <laughs> you're defunding of defunding all of our police. <laughs> But I have a history of working across the aisle with, even when we were in the majority, working with some of my Republican colleagues and helping them get their bills passed when they were in the minority. And so traffic and transportation is not a partisan issue. We should be able to work together to get some issues done for our region for that. Uh, Funding our educators is not a partisan issue. We should be able to work with Republicans to get that accomplished. Um, and even as we're taking a look at affordable housing for this region, because that's still a major issue, that again is not a partisan issue. Um, and so while we may have to shift some of our talking points or some of the ways we want to get our things accomplished, I still think that if the Republicans have control of the House and the Senate, and Yunkin, we will still be able to get some things accomplished and bring some money home for the team. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, Fair. I, I think too that's a that's a, a point that seems to come up with uh, universally. I think most of the guests that have come on the show is this idea that compromise is really important. That we want to reach across the aisle and to to really be able to see some forward movement on some of these critical issues. Um, so in a, in an environment where you feel like that is. Uh, obviously, there's some real polarization going on in our public discourse. What are some challenges that you anticipate and maybe some lessons that you've learned with your experience of how to do that effectively? Yeah. Um, one of the things I always talk about is um, while I disagree with certain people, he's the governor. I'm going to have to work with him. But there's also things that I can hold him accountable on. If I'm elected, obviously, as a Democrat, we're not going to agree on everything. I can call him a task. I'm not going to be an obstructionist and I'm not going to support this. I'm not going to. No, I'll work with him. But I also will call him out on certain things that we feel should be done a different way. And I think when you talk about friendships or relationships, the good thing about a good relationship is even if you don't agree with everything, you don't talk all the things and give them all the credit and say, you did that a good job. You hold them accountable and say, I'm working, we're all here to work for a better life for Virginians. I don't agree with that. I'm going to call you out on it. But I do agree with this. Let's work together on it. Um, And so I think we learned that in Richmond. There were even times where there were bills. um, Prime example, I had a piece of legislation dealing with um, hearing aids for minors. Um, My bill was killed in the House. I'm a Democrat and my 
colleagues killed the bill in the house. <laughs> Ouch. But I had this grandmother who was a constituent, and just like Jesus and the persistent widow, we had the House version that bill was killed, but there was a Senate version that a Republican senator was carrying, and she marched herself right over to the Speaker's office. She marched herself over to the chair of the uh, Health and Wellness Committee, and she said, we need this bill passed. I got a call from the Speaker a couple of weeks later, because now it was crossover, so the Republican, you know, the, the Senate bills are coming over, and the Speaker says, are you passionate about this bill? I said, absolutely. She said, okay, I apologize that your version was killed, but we're going to pass this bill and you'll still be able to take credit for it. And so I worked with my Republican colleagues to make sure that I ushered that bill through the House process and we got it passed. And the good news is me and that senator do not agree nearly on anything, but we celebrated together that we were able to pass a piece of legislation. Yeah, it was one of the things people don't quite get about Richmond, right? It's like, like in front like in front of the cameras, there's, you know, yeah, people are going to fight for what they believe. Behind closed doors is one of the few places still where Republicans and Democrats can still sit down and grab a beer or talk or whatever. Um, you know, it, 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 like, but especially during that session, like the Republicans are killing every Democratic bill. It's just like, you know what, if that's the way it's going to be, then bop, 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 bop. and then Democrats the same way. It's like, yeah, well, we've had this chamber a lot longer. We know it's tricks better. And they start gunning down all the Republican <laughs> legislation. And then you get a phone call like that, right? Where it's like, look, are, are, you really want this? It's like, and then it, it actually happens. Um, do you find that to be more of the norm in Richmond? Or do you find that maybe over the last five or 10 years that the sort of like the DC partisanship or Fox News, MSC, whatever, are, are we losing a bit of what they, they call the Virginia way yeah. down that way? Yeah. So the time that I was down there, <laughs> it was exciting because of course you would see, you could tell who was about to run for another office because they would always get on the house floor and make these partisan yeah. speeches, you know, the show off. <laughs> But ultimately, at the end of the day, um, we wanted to make sure that we were doing what was right for Virginians. And so even if Republicans had good bills, and this is just kind of like shedding the light on what would happen in Richmond. I remember in 2018, when we had that narrow minority, um, there were good bills that the Democrats were introducing. The Republicans would kill it in subcommittee, bring it back like the next day, introduce it so that they could take the credit. And so when yes. we had the majority, I was like, well, why are we doing this? We're letting the Republicans get all these good credit. And uh, one thing I really appreciated about the leadership of Speaker Philicorn was it doesn't matter on who gets to take the credit as long as the work is done for Virginia. And that's how she led. And so even though the Republicans would kill legislation back then, she was like, we're not going to play those. Of course, we play some games. Don't get me wrong. No, no, it, both sides do. It was like, you figure it's like, well, where do you think Republicans yeah. learned that from? Yeah. Like, like, Boss Moss taught us well. It's, a, it's the old speaker down in Norfolk, right? I mean, so, but yeah, but, that, but it, the shenanigans are played. But like the the, the highlights are, the highlight reel is a little bit better than the than the shenanigans. Absolutely. The and I mean, you would see, so right after session and we're cussing and throwing cups at each other on the House floor, as soon as we leave, the same Republicans and Democrats are down at the tobacco company of chilling course. it out and eating <laughs> Yeah. And I, I mean, I think it's important that people hear that, even especially with as like the polarizing image, right, that we're all kind of given. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to hear, especially local politicians being able to speak to yeah. how, you know, it's you're not just representing your party, mm -hmm. right? If you're elected, you represent a constituency that yeah. is comprised of people with different viewpoints than you. And mm -hmm. you have a responsibility to to uphold that and to, yeah. to represent them just as much. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. yeah, it's 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 interesting because it, and even in that exchange, I mean, some of your partisan types are going to hear it's like, well, if a Democrat and a Republican are sitting there getting a beer, then somebody's surrendering their principles, right? It's like you can still have pretty strong principles and believe what you believe, and at the same time, be able to to, to talk about either that or other things, you know, um, which is still there in Richmond, but I mean, certainly dying off in Washington. I was talking with a, a friend of mine who's a chief of staff up there, and uh, you can't even go to a restaurant for fear that. You know, if you sit with a Republican or you sit with somebody of the party opposite, then you're working with the other side. You're working, yeah. <laughs> now, now you're disloyal, right? Mm-hmm. And it's and in local politics, you've seen that kind of arrive too. Maybe not so much with with parties, but certainly with personalities. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Richmond still seems to be insulated from that to some degree. Um, even if I mean, I, I think we have lost it a little bit. Um, like you said, you know, people grandstanding on the House floor and then turning around and rubbing for you know House of Representatives or higher office or whatever the case may be. But um, it's one of those things like we're in the danger of losing it. So I'm kind of like like blowing embers on the coals, saying, "How do we keep that growing? How do we find the personalities who are willing to make that continue to be what's unique about Virginia, rather than sacrificing it for?" partisanship and you know five minutes of fame you know yeah and what i think is is so amazing though is when we go to richmond we're only in session you know january through march every year it's kind of like being in an isolated bubble um and so the you know the extremist politicians are away from the extremist supporters and so you come to richmond some of them may follow you for lobby day or whatever um but you realize when you're in richmond i only have 60 days 45 days to get this stuff done. I'll go ahead and do my little speeches on the floor, but I got to get to work. And for most of the legislators who are down there, they can do that speech thing when they're on the camera. That's one thing. But when it comes time to doing the committee work for most of the, for most of the time, they actually get to work and do what they're supposed to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so kind of bringing it back to your House of Delegates race, Politico named it as one of the top five races in Virginia. So congratulations for that. Um, one of the, what's interesting, though, is that, that neither one of you, I mean, I don't think anybody would necessarily cage you as a moderate, Josh. Would that be fair? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, <laughs> so, so, mm-hmm, yes. Uh, so so you, you know, you're, you're, you're on the progressive end of the spectrum. I don't think anybody would ever accuse Lee Peters of being a, a moderate either, right? He's most certainly a conservative in his principles. So here we have, you, know, you just kind of mentioned like extreme like you know kind of extreme parts of the commonwealth where it's like northern virginia where it's really safe to be a progressive or say rural virginia where it's really safe to be like a, a trump populist and then you get a place like fredericksburg where the margins are so narrow and yet it's it the the, the you've got two candidates who, who really aren't running from the center they're sort of running from these perspectives talk to me a little bit about that i mean is that is that kind of working or people just kind of more appreciative that you're honest and then they throw a rock at you afterwards and say, ah, communist. Or do they, <laughs> or, or is it that the, you can that the people are trying to like rush for the center and solutions and, and, and that dynamic, you've got a unique insight on that. So yeah. share that with us. So um, just for, for insiders, I'm, I serve on um, the democratic party of Virginia and I'm a DNC member and I don't know how it happened, but I have this unique ability to pull people together. Whether I'm on the progressive side and I want to pull some of the establishment folks together, or I'm the Democrat trying to pull some Republicans together. I don't know if it's from me growing up here in Stafford and going to Liberty University or what it is, but I... But I have that unique ability to just have conversations and talk to people. And so while I've been branded as this, you know, progressive leader in the Commonwealth, 
one of the things I'm concerned about is just making sure, and you'll hear me say it, it's become like a campaign slogan for us, Lottie Dottie and everybody. I just want to make sure that Lottie Dottie and everybody has a voice and that they feel represented. And so um, one thing that I would talk to people there, you know, I have Republican friends and even Republican supporters because they've known me for a while. They'll say to me, you know, I I don't believe what you believe, or I could never vote for anyone else beside you because of how you believe, but I appreciate how you talk about it. I appreciate your honesty and your transparency. And that's one of the things I try to do when I was in Richmond. Prime example, before I, um, right after I got elected, we had a town hall and I talked about the, I think it was a, um, assault weapons ban. And I told the people there I would never support it. One, because it made people who owned guns after the bill went enacted, they would make them automatic felons. Um, And I was like, I absolutely do not support that. The bill came up to the House floor. I voted for it and I got attacked. Oh, you voted to make me a felon? I said, no, 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 no. I told you, well, maybe not that individual, but I made it clean, made it clear that I would not support this legislation if it automatically made people felons for just owning their property. And so why did I vote for it? Because myself and Delegate Dan Helmer from Fairfax, we worked together to introduce a floor amendment that pulled that felony part out of the bill. And so people were frustrated because they thought that I lied and voted for an assault weapons ban that made them felons. And I remember having this like hour long conversation on Facebook. And finally, the gentleman just said, well, I apologize. I didn't see that part. I still wouldn't vote for you, but at least thank you for pulling that part out. (laughs) And that's what I try to do just to have the conversations. Let's sit down at the table. Let's talk about the issues. Whether we agree to disagree or we agree and walk together, we should at least be willing to sit down and have those conversations. Yeah. What do you feel like, uh, you know, is kind of the best medium to do that? And especially like in a a situation where now like you are, you know, campaigning, right? How Mm -hmm. do you make those touch points with people who, you know, wouldn't necessarily vote for you or who are even, you know, in situations where this person is not going to vote for me. Mm -hmm. Can you share a little bit about what you do to try to incorporate their points of view? Yeah, yeah. So um, a couple different things I'm doing right now. I am literally knocking doors every single day and I'm not just knocking on Democrat doors. I'm reaching across the aisle. We'll get some Republicans too. And if we're able to get them on the doors, I have conversations. Some people are just like, oh, no, I don't have any questions. And some people open the door. Yeah, I want to know why you voted for this. <laughs> and then, I'm, well, I'm glad you asked. And we begin to have those conversations. There are also some people, and I, I've kind of noticed a decline between this election cycle and maybe like 2019 and 2021. People used to comment on social media and say, you know, you did this, you did that, or thank you for doing this. And we don't really have that many interaction on social media like we used to from 2019 to 2021. And I actually missed that because people out the blue would just comment on a post, you know, I don't agree with this or I saw this commercial. And then I would begin to have an interaction with them. And, you know, sometimes we win people over. Sometimes we sometimes wouldn't. Sometimes you don't. <laughs> <laughs> but I also love the fact and I of course, I didn't get to really do it as much because of the pandemic. But when you're in office, I love having town halls to invite people and especially people who don't agree with you to just say, hey, I'm having this town hall. I want to sit down. I want to talk with you. And that's one of the promises I make, you know, 
God willing, we're, we're successful on November the 7th. I want to have at least three town halls before I get to Richmond to hear from the people to find out what the issues are. Um, you know, we know there's the methadone clinic. We know there's the traffic issue. We know there's the reproductive rights issue. We know there's the schools issue. So I want to hear from people before I go to Richmond to talk about the issues. There are some things on my mind I already think I know I want to do, but I want to hear from the greater community, give them the opportunity and give them at least more than one opportunity to do it. Um, And then when we get to Richmond, making sure that we're still accessible, that they can still call us when we're in Richmond, that if they want to come down, they can still come down to our office. And that's one of the things I loved about just being accessible and making sure that I have the ability to be accessible to the the constituents of the 65th. So one of the, the, the neat things about like you as a persona, right, is that, you know, typically you, you hear, you know, with Democrats and, and faith in the public square, it, it, it's a very allergic reaction to it. Republicans are typically known for sporting their faith and wearing it on their sleeve and doing all that. You do likewise um, as a Christian Democrat. Um, so you've got this background as a pastor, so the town hall format just fits. Talk to me a little bit about that experience, because it's really unique amongst, like, you know, I mean, it's, it's starting to become more in vogue. It starts letting people know where you're coming from, but most people don't expect to hear oh yes and I'm also a Democrat behind all that talk to me about that experience and how that's sort of you know when you interact with like say the people on the opposite side of the aisle or maybe people within your party they're like could you dial it back on the faith bit oh yes Um, (laughs) um, talk to me about that dynamic because that's kind of a I mean the last person to really fill that role was kind of like RFK and then it kind of died out but you're kind of in that spot right yeah so when I came out to run for office and people found out I was a pastor it was kind of like a shock for me because all the elected pastors I know are all Democrats. So when people were shocked, it was like, oh, you're running as a Democrat and you're a pastor. I was like, well, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because, I mean, there were congressional members who were pastors. There was a Roman Catholic priest. There was um, a pastor in Chicago who was the only one to hold the record of beating Obama in an election. Um, Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) Bobby Rush from Chicago. He was a pastor. You had um, a delegate Luke Torian who was a pastor. You have delegate Sia Price who went through theological seminary. And many people don't even know um, that... um, Congressman McEachin graduated with an MDF from Virginia Union Theological Seminary. So a lot of the ministry like entangled folks that I knew who were elected were all Democrats. Um, And that was one of the things I sought to go after too was, hey, we see a lot of the staunch Republican Christians who are laying claim to this party. And I'll clearly say it on this show that Jesus is not a Republican. Jesus is not a Democrat. Um, And what I believe in is just fighting for everyone. And I use my faith for that because Jesus said, what you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. So every time we cut health care, we're cutting health care for Jesus. Every time we don't feed children and paying for school lunches for children, we're cutting that off. From, and that's the way I look at it. And so when I go to Richmond, people can get mad at me all they want to, but I literally pray over every piece of legislation to figure out, hey, should I vote for this? Should I vote for that? And I'm sure people was like, but that's not true because you're voting for abortion. So you... <laughs> <laughs> But I just believe in, you know, that higher power that gives me the direction on which way I go. And that higher power also directs me to listen to the community, fight for the least amongst us, and make sure that people who wouldn't have a seat at the table have a seat at the table now. Sure. So, so I... All right, we'll go ahead and I'll play this card. So, so I, I mean, I'm Roman Catholic, obviously. Mm-hmm. So, so our position on abortion is going to be very rigid, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you talk about, yeah, it's like, okay, we're talking about the least of these and all this thing. It's like, well, 
Isn't that, or isn't that the very least of ours? Mm-hmm. I mean, you might believe something personally, right, on this yeah. question. And you probably do, right? Absolutely. And so but it's one of those things that's always kind of struck me, like, and especially on, on our side of the fence, like if you were to put a blanket ban on abortion today, how many abortions would it stop? Mm-hmm. Zero, right. right? And so if you can't get the most perfect thing, right? It's like, you know, Plato in the Republic. If you can't get the Republic, how do you implement the laws, right? Mm-hmm. So if you can't get the most perfect thing, how do you get the second perfect thing? And the second perfect thing is like, well, making sure women feel comfortable in their choices. If you want to have a really pro-life society, what do you do? You, great health care, great schools, great roads, great jobs, like all mm-hmm. the ancillary things that make life you know, human flourishing, as Aristotle right. puts it. Um, but that, that's got to be a difficult road to, 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 to walk, especially when, you know, you've got interests in, in Richmond that are, you know, 40 weeks and beyond. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you balance that? And how do you explain that? To, I mean, because it, it's, it's got to be complicated for you, at least. But you, but clearly, I mean, you, you make the allowance. How do you balance that out? How do you, how do you walk me through that a little bit? Because I think that'd be, that's, that's super interesting to me anyway. Yeah, absolutely. So, of course, like you said, I have my personal beliefs. Me and my wife are actually having a conversation about this. Um, and she, <laughs> she was like, I don't want any more kids, but if something was to happen, I would never have an abortion. That's, that's our personal choice. And that's the thing. We have the ability to decide. Um, and so I have conversations with people all the time and I'm like, Deuteronomy 3019 says, I am the Lord thy God. I laid life and death before you. Choose life that your children might live. And so it's indicative that God wants us to choose life. But the key phrase there is choose. And so my question is, if God gives us lot, gives us choices, who is the government to take it away? Now, I do believe the government should have some protections, and that's why we have the current law in Virginia, which I believe stops at 26 weeks, um, and we want to make sure that that option is protected. And even having conversations on the doors, whether we agree or disagree on that personal choice, I've had conversations with Republican women who are saying, you know, I'm Republican, I'm pro-life as they are but I don't want abortion ban in Virginia. And we know that when Governor Youngkin started talking about abortion ban, the abortions in Virginia went up. But when women feel like they have the right to have their decision and they can make that decision, we typically see abortions go down or plateau. And so because it's also a medical, a medical procedure, we want to make sure that it's done properly and that it's protected. So, so I know it was it. Terry McAuliffe ended up pretty much ripping this up. But uh, you know, there was the McDonald administration. They actually had well, if you're going to be an abortion provider in Virginia, you have to have basic medical standards that meet the the same ones that dentists have to meet. Um, Democrats opposed that bill. Is that something that you would support? I would have to take a look at the bill. I don't remember right off the top of my head. Okay. But you're talking about like, but this. And my, my stance is I want to make sure we're protecting the current law. That's right. That's where I'm coming from. And that, again, like I said, stops at like 26 weeks. And I think that's when a doctor says the baby is viable or whatever have you. But again, it's about making sure people have the option to choose. If they're a sure. family, they get to have that decision. If it's just a woman, she gets to have that decision. Um, and so that's where I want to make sure that that current law is protected. And I don't think people realize that. They, I guess the Guttmacher Institute ended up coming out with numbers. I think post Dobbs, the number of abortions in the United States went up 40%. Like, that's not a number to be proud of, right? And so it's like, you know, as we're having this conversation, it's it's somewhat important. I mean, I know what I believe as a, as a Christian and as a Catholic. Um, it's not necessarily my role to force everybody to believe what I believe, but on matters of life and death and the things that we value and what we protect, it's an important conversation. And so having that conversation is really important, but they, like, the way that we've structured it right now, it's just, we got, it, 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 it's, it's violent, right? I mean, it's just, it, there's no, it's not really even a conversation about the things that we value 
or, you know, seeing, you know, you, I mean, you kind of touched on earlier, like the Imago Day and the other person, right? And we was like, so in Republicans, rightly, it's like, well, we're pro-birth, but, you know, what do you do afterwards? It's mm-hmm. like, yeah, well, on that whole, like, you know, it's like, Done. between Pre- life and choice, job, right? choose life. It's like, well, have great t- have a great time with all your choices in mm-hmm. poverty. Yeah, um, you won't be able to get a house. Yeah, it's like somebody... Or, or even adoption. Yeah, adoption yeah. is so expensive. Yeah, so it's insane. Expensive. I've even had conversations and arguments. We had to defend a bill when I was in Richmond about allowing same-sex couples adopt. And there were churches who came out in mass and was like, absolutely not. And I'm like, okay, well, you talk about being pro-life, making sure that these kids get into a loving home. We want to make sure that happens too. But wasn't the, was, I think it was Delegate Divine that ended up putting up the bill. I think it was the, the, the what they ended up doing is like, okay, if you're a like Catholic charities, for instance, if you must violate your religious charter in order to allow this, and if you don't do that, then we're, we're taking your money away. Yeah, and I think... I. If I'm, I'm trying to remember which one of the bills was, but I actually spoke up on the House floor and I was saying, hey, if you are a public entity, there's something different if you're private or you do something just you know between the churches or whatever. But if you're a public entity, just make sure we're not discriminating against anybody. And I got attacked by the church community saying, sure. you know, <laughs> but I'm just saying, if you're a public company, a public organization, and you claim to be public, make sure that you're not discriminating of anyone who wants to walk through your doors. And that's where I stood on that. And, and that's so that seems like it's a real real bright line for you is like the, the non-discrimination element in in public policies. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what your background is, or what you bring to the table. We treat you equally in every instance, yeah. no matter what. And if we're not, then we need to iron that out. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you speak to a little bit too, I know like all of these, you know, kind of satellite pieces to that conversation really uh, kind of come down to protection of other types of, you know, access to services, access, like you were saying, transportation, uh, healthcare, all of these really core pieces. Can you speak to what your plans are and what you've heard from, sure. you know, the community so far of what those priorities will look like for you? Yeah. Yeah. So I think, um, and like I said, nationally, we're talking about what reproductive choices. So that's a major one. We want to make sure that we're protecting the current law, that no abortion ban comes to Virginia, and that we also enshrine it in the state constitution. But if we're looking locally about the issues that people are concerned about, when I'm knocking on doors, I'm hearing about transportation. And another major issue that people really want, I've been talking about this since 2017, is a third river crossing that connects <laughs> 17 to Central Park. And so I've been having extensive conversations with people who live in Celebrate Virginia. I know FAMPO is in the process of doing doing that research. Um, and I'm like, finally, I've been talking about it since 2017 and now people are listening to me. <laughs> How expensive is that going to be? Do you know off the top of your head? That's part of the the plan that they're doing the research on. Okay. Um, and I think there's like four different routes and that can be four different amounts. Right. Um, and so I just want to make sure that I'm in Richmond to make sure that money's in the budget so that we can actually afford it. Right. Um, and then, so that third river crossing, the regional transportation authority, which makes sure we have money in the region, that we're competitive um, because while we're the again, I said this earlier. While we're the third fastest growing region in the state, we're number five as it relates to transportation funding, and that's because Richmond, Hampton Roads, Northern Virginia, I eighty one all have RTAs, or regional transportation authorities, and we do not. And so, basically, what that means is when they go to the Smart Scale to say we need this project done, Smart Scale is like, okay, well, how much you bring it to the table? Well, this is what we got, and they get their projects moved up faster. Fredericksburg region, what do you? bring to the table well sir can i have some more (laughs) a tin cup (laughs) and so those are some of the plans day one we want to take a look into 
as it relates to schools, I think it's no hesitate, no, no secret of what's happening in our public schools, whether it relates to us losing teacher, the teacher shortage, even right here in Fredericksburg, Stafford and Spotsylvania, the teachers still live here. But they're leaving the school systems here and going to Prince William County or Loudoun because they're getting 15, 20,000 more a year. So I don't blame them. So we want to make sure that we are paying our educators so that we can retain them. We need to make sure that our school boards, our parents and our board of supervisors are working together so that we can make sure that money is being put in the right way. And then we also want to restore that trust and hope in our public school system. And I think, especially living in this area, you have a lot of parents who are commuters. So it's not that they're bad parents. They're just busy and they have a lot going on. And so they don't have time to be dealing with teacher uh, parent conferences after they get off 95 for two hours. And I want to see some super teachers like who I used to work with when I worked in Richmond City Public Schools. If you weren't coming to the PTO that was scheduled, the parent teacher conference that was scheduled, that teacher got up and went to your house in the court and was like, hey, I'm going to show up at your house in the middle of the hood. That's she awesome. showed up and knocked on your door <laughs> and was like, let's talk about your child's uh, grade level, read, your reading level and things like that. And so if the parents can't get in, we have Zoom, we have Meets, we have, I hate, uh, what is it? Microsoft Teams. I hate oh, Teams. teams. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. but we have all of these technology now where educators and parents can come together. Let's bridge that divide. Let's restore those conversations. And instead of electing all these crazy folk on the school board, let's make sure we have boring school board members who are reachable that you could call and email and talk to. And because they don't have crazy school board meetings going on, they can actually respond and have conversations. <laughs> We're going to make our school boards as boring as possible, right? And it's like, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, it sounds like to me that, um, you know, it's really important that uh, that accessibility is the forefront. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, always, I constantly say to people that, you know, the currency that means the most in our country is accessibility. And that is that is ultimately how policy should be decided. And accessibility through whether it's through transportation, giving us access to things that's obviously hard for people to do. And just a little bit more on, you know, reaching out to constituents. Uh, We've sat here and listened to a lot of people talk about their positions on a lot of things, especially in our local municipality. But there are clearly some challenges to reach families that cannot attend meetings and things like that. So how how can we like what what can we do differently like what what creativity do we need to try to get those people involved because they obviously can't do it through traditional means because going to a meeting is the difference between feeding their kids or not. So we had this tradition in church where it was called each one reach one, excuse me, not tradition, adage. Each one reach one. And so I prided myself on having town halls in Garrison Woods. I prided myself on having town halls in uh, Mayfield, in Old Forge, the places where politicians typically wouldn't even think to go to because these are where my cousins are. These are where my friends are. These are where my mom and aunties grew up, and we know they were neglected communities. So I went to them and said, hey, we're having dinner for y'all tonight. Come on over here and let's have a conversation. And so we, we know, uh, you know, England Run, People go to England Run. We know people go to, um, uh, what's the community over there off of Deacon Road and... 
Oh, I don't. I don't remember off the top of my head either. Goodness gracious, Ferry Leland Farm Station. Leland, Leland Station. Station. Okay. Folks go to Leland Station. Folks go to all these other communities, but the communities where they're neglected. When I was in office, I made a priority of showing up and being there, and all the way down to the point now, I have folks in Garrison Woods who is like. I can't vote for you. Well, I don't want to vote for nobody else. Well, no, I need you to support my buddy. <laughs> right? And so you're right. When people can't get to these meetings, that doesn't mean that their voices don't need to be heard. We as the elected officials need to show up where they are, take away some of their problems. You know, many of them, like you said, if they show up to a meeting, their kids are not going to have dinner tonight. So we're going to take dinner to them. My cousin is privileged to own a food truck. We're bringing that food truck and we're going to sit down and have a conversation with them. Yeah, I think that's such an important point, too. And Corey and I talk about this often because I think it's easy to kind of paint participation as something that's just voluntary and Mm -hmm. willing. And if you're not participating, then you're, you know, a a myriad. Yes, exactly. Of, of, you know, kind of bad faith actor situation. But the reality is, is a lot of those parents, a lot of those people, you know, are working during those meetings or they're the, you know, have to go to the grocery store after their, you know, 12 hour work day, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? So I think that's, that's really important. I think also for constituents to hear, you know, when there are people who want to go to them to, to get their opinions and to really hear how people feel about things, the issues that are important to them, because, you know, as you said, so many people oftentimes don't have that seat at the table. And then not only do they not have the seat at the table, but then they're painted as like, well, you could have been here if you Mm -hmm. wanted to. But the reality is, is, you know, between all of the issues that we're talking about here at this table, that's not accessible to people. So. Yeah. Um, so, so like one thing. So, if you end up getting elected, you got to promise you're going to do this. So, or at least look into it. So, one of the ways we could actually resolve this in terms of education spending in Virginia. What if the Commonwealth of Virginia were to set one pay scale for every teacher? I think we had a bill to do that in 2020. I think it set the the um, minimum. Uh, teacher salary requirement. And then I think there was a scale after that, but it set a minimum across the state. Yeah, screw the minimum. We're going to do one scale all the way. So if you're a teacher in Fairfax, you're a teacher in Floyd, Richmond, wherever, one scale across the Commonwealth, that would obviously you know lift everybody because nobody in Fairfax is going to take a pay cut. Mm-hmm. But that also means that $80,000 you're being paid in Fairfax would go a lot longer in like rural parts sure, of the Commonwealth. Or, yeah, exactly. So, But that's, there's obviously going to be a cost in that. But I can't think, I can't imagine that the cost is any better or worse than the you know three billion dollars of tax cuts we just gave corporations um seems like a better investment of our money writ large but we take a jlark report so that's probably where we'd start jlark comes out and says here's the price tag and you say okay why can't we is, is this something you know take it back to the citizens of virginia and say okay see what put they it, want so you put it in a referendum so are you willing to pay 0.5 cents mm-hmm. for for teachers that are actually worth their salt yeah I mean, it seems like a logical thing to do, but that would, that would, I mean, imagine I all love of the. to introduce a JLock report. Imagine, <laughs> imagine 134 different localities fighting over this particular thing. It just dissolves instantly. And it goes back to Richmond. Richmond gets to go ahead and decide what that pay scale is and let, let the General Assembly decide how to meet their constitutional obligations. Yeah. Don't leave it to localities, some of whom really can't afford to catch the grenades, mm-hmm. to argue and knife their neighbors every, you know, every year and how yeah. to meet that need. I don't know. I, I like it. There we go. I'll, I'll, I'll carry a JLARC report. <laughs> awesome. Come in. If it, if so should you? It's a narrow race, I know. But should you end up winning? Um, you know, I'll, I'll go to Lee Peters and ask him the same things. All right, I want this. You know, your opposition was going to do 
it for me. How come you won't? <laughs> um, but no, but it, but it seems like one of those things where it's like Richmond too often and, and Alec, um, which is the kind of a conservative mm-hmm. think tank, they come back and they bring it localities and say, well, localities compared to some of the northern states don't put in nearly as much in taxes. And of course, localities have a 19th century tax system to do yeah. this with. Um, it's not like they have all the tools that Richmond or even cities have. So it sets up all these little fights that unfortunately impact. It's a regressive tax nature, so it impacts the working poor harder than anybody else. Yeah. Um, so Richmond could be meeting a lot more of these responsibilities, right? and and they're choosing not to do so, and they're choosing it to kick down to localities. You mentioned transportation, the mm-hmm. link between land use and transportation, and the way that we approach that. Could you talk to me a little bit about localities and the relationship with Richmond and some of the things that you see, especially transportation? Because I think that's a, a... I mean, localities build out, and they go back to Richmond with a tin cup and say, please. Yep. Um, we don't have a regional taxing authority here. I mean, go Virginia is obviously kind of working that way, like putting PDCs in there. Talk to me a little bit about that dynamic, because that's a really important thing with $10 billion of unmet need in the area just to bring things up to snuff, plus Mm -hmm. however many billions of dollars it's going to take to get us set right. Yeah. So um, this is a wonderful opportunity where we have good relationships with the local elected officials to have the conversations. And of course, there are things that slip through the cracks because you're in Richmond for 60 days, 45 days, and it's zoom, 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 zoom. So there are things that skip through the cracks, but I've had numerous conversations about at least funding. So um, at least Stafford is concerned about, I believe it's called COCA. The, the, don't get me quoted on what the acronym is. I couldn't tell you either, so don't, yeah. <laughs> but changing how that's funded. And in the city of Fredericksburg, the, um, uh, the I forgot about the the, the funding scale for the cities, but adjusting that as well. Um, and this is why it's so important to make sure that the state legislators are having conversation with the local elected officials. And local officials are having conversations with the state elected officials and the state elected officials are having conversations with the congressional folks. And even if we're not on the same party ticket, at least we're having the conversations to figure out how we can get this to work. And so I really appreciate during my time in Richmond, when I would have conversations with Tom Cohen or um, uh, the school board member for George Washington District, even though we were on different party tickets, we were able to have conversations on how to get things to work. And so that's what's going to need to happen. If we want to see more money come down from the state, and, and I'll say this, I might get in trouble by some of my other colleagues, but Virginia has money. It's key. Virginia has money and we can adjust and renegotiate and re, uh, um, uh, re-budget that we can um, because we always have a surplus in the budget. And when you have a surplus in the budget, that means there are needs that are not being met. And so I, I know we celebrate you know, budgeting this way and saving this money, but we don't can't celebrate if we have a surplus in the budget and teachers aren't being paid well. We can't celebrate a surplus in the budget and there's potholes in the streets or uh, it's taking forever to get a bridge built across a river or there are bridges that are beyond repair and people are still driving over them every single day. Yeah. So we can't <laughs> northbound keep... 95, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. And so we can't celebrate the surplus in the budget if there still needs to be met. And so we definitely have to restore that connection. And the sad reality is you get some of these uh, elected officials who've been in this, not just Republicans, but Democrats too, who've been in the seats for 30, 20, 15 years and their buddies on the board of supervisors on the school board just keep celebrating them, but they're really not doing the real work in Richmond. Mm. Um, And so we definitely have to restore that interaction between the federal level, the state level and the local level and having effective communications so that 
the localities stop giving wish lists and what they actually really need. And so the people who are going down to the General Assembly can get it done. I think that's a great like kind of segue to to a question that I have about the, you know like the regional focus, right? So what do you think our region can do to help foster that relationship with Richmond with state legislature, right? Like what can our localities do to help foster that conversation and then subsequently, you know, if you are in office, what will you do to help bridge those gaps? Sure. Yeah, so this is a little behind-the-scenes work of what happens before we go to Richmond. Um, Every year, before I would go back to Richmond, I would get a little email from Stafford County or the city of Fredericksburg saying, we are inviting you to hear our proposals and our uh, our views for what should happen in the next General Assembly session. And I loved it because we would come down, we would sit down, all the elected officials in the locality and the city council of the school board members or the board of supervisors members, they would give us this wonderful packet of what they wanted to see done, right? And what I want to encourage is anyone who's getting elected to these local boards, make sure you continue to have those meetings. And I don't care if your local elected official is on your party or not, hold them accountable if they don't carry what you want in Richmond. And Mm -hmm. so we have some great boards and organizations, um, uh, the Virginia VACO, the Virginia Association of Counties, and they do great work when we're in Richmond to lobby. But again, just because it's your buddy, hold them accountable if they don't take your priorities to Richmond. And so I'm looking forward to it because I've only had Stafford and Fredericksburg. Now I have the entire city of, well, I'm saying, and I'm speaking those things that are not as they were. I will I have. Should the voters elect to honor you with the, the privilege of representing them in Richmond? Yes. Yeah, so we will have the whole city and now Spotsylvania. And for the first time in a long time, you know, not to tooting my own horn, but I think Spotsylvania will actually have some actual real representation in Richmond. Not just, uh, I'm not shooting guns, you know, shooting shots at anyone, but not just someone who was the, you know, assistant administrator for the county and would just go down there and do what they wanted to do. (laughs) But now they would actually have someone who will get down to Richmond and do the work. And the same thing on the Senate level as well. I'm excited because there are people in in, in Spotsylvania who've been struggling for a while because you've had, you know, the Tea Party running the board of supervisors and now they're going to actually get someone who went to work i remember having a conversation with one of the members of the board of visitors for mary washington who said you are the first person in a couple of years who has gotten every single one of our budget amendments through in 2020 oh wow and so hey i want to do that for Spotsylvania county tell me what y'all need i'll go to work for you too nice can we uh, so so obviously you know defund the police Mm-hmm. Talk about that a little bit. Is that where you're at? Just like defunding the police, or is it no? You know, it's not defunding the police. It's you know they need funding in the right way. Give me a nuance on that because they're just you know I mean that's what they're you know that's what they're throwing at you. They're just throwing rocks. It's got to be more nuance to it, right? Absolutely. So um, you will never find a Facebook post, a Twitter post, even on my personal Facebook. You will never find anything where I even retweeted or reshared something about defunding the police. Um, What I think is so important, one, I carried a budget amendment in 2021, excuse me, the 2020 special session and the 2021 regular session to increase police training funding for all of our state regional police academies. So 
I don't know how that fits in the agenda of defunding the police, but I want to make sure police officers are trained. I also want to make sure that our police officers are paid a good salary because they're putting their lives on the line every single day. I also want to make sure that there's funding there to make sure they're receiving the mental health resources that they need because we are hearing so many police officers talk about having a stressful day or maybe shooting or something like that. They never get um, a mental health evaluation Hmm. and they go to work the next day like nothing even happened. And so Uh I know it's expedient for Republicans to do this. I think there's a commercial saying that I wanted to remove school resource officers out of the schools. Maybe. I don't know. There's There's a a commercial out there. And what the Republicans used as proof was the fact that I was a member of the Black Caucus. (laughs) And the Black Caucus had it in a letter. But guess what? There was never a bill that called for that. And so I keep asking, if you say I'm wanting to defund the police, show me the proof because the proof is in the pudding. Where is the bills that I voted for to defund the police? Where is the budget amendment I voted for to defund the police? I think there's only one thing they have, and that was when we voted to create a fund to allow police officers to pull money from a fund for uh, funding their body cam. I was the only no vote on that because we had already raised the budget so much they should have the money to afford body cams. So that was the only thing they could have. And my big thing is making sure, one, our police officers are receiving the funding that they need, the mental health capacity that they need, and then restore that community policing. So police officers know the area that they're policing. They know the kids. Instead of having a child that's, you know, a child that's on the spectrum, not understanding, and then just having an unfortunate situation, being going to policing the community where you know this child. Oh, that's just little Johnny. I'm like, come on, Johnny, let's go on home. Or him knowing how a certain kid in the community acts. Now, Dejan, you know better. Go on <laughs> home for I call Miss Jackson on you. You know, yep. that's the type of policing I grew up with. And we want to make sure that's restored. And especially within the black community, because there is distrust between the black community and the police officers right now. And we want to restore that. We don't want to exacerbate that and create a bigger gulf than's already there. We want to restore that. So you, a lot of Republicans only hear like, you know, BLM and things of that nature. See in 2017, they saw what they saw in, in I guess, 2020 or whatever the case may be. Um, it, it just scares the heck out of them, right? And you seem to have like, you know, because like, look, I mean, there are legitimate grievances here um, that, that, you know, Republicans just don't have the taste buds for because they don't live in those communities. They don't have that, ex- that, that experience. Talk to me some of the things you've done to like make that experience shared by Republicans who, frankly, just don't understand why you're coming at it from the direction you are. Because you just don't hear that story, right? And that's mm-hmm. where, you know, you get we get in our bubble and we kind of hear it a certain way. But you've got you you've been there, you've 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 led in certain ways, and then you've sort of like brought the things back to solutions that have worked. Yeah. Talk to me about that experience, because that's got that's a pretty I mean you I mean again it's one of the reasons why you're 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 so celebrated and so known in Fredericksburg anyway. Share some of that with us real quick. Yeah, I think one of the major things things, especially me being a spiritual person, is being in the right place at the right time. And um, there's a scripture that says, being in a place for such a time as this. Um, And I don't shortchange the fact that I was in office at the right time when all of these protests and different things were going on. And one thing I tell people is, now that I was an elected official, I don't protest because the way I protest is by writing legislation. So when Mm. all of these protests were going on, I wasn't actively 
protesting, but I was on the scene because I was talking to these kids. I was talking to these people who were protesting and I said, hey, there's a special session that's about to happen. What do you want to see change? Because I'm your state representative and I want to go down there. But then I can't take all the credit because there were community leaders like Vernon Green from Stafford and uh, Vice Mayor Chuck Fry. They bought the protesters and the police officers together. So I know you hear my opponent talk about I was I was leading the war, but what he's not talking about is how I brought the community together with other leaders. And so we had multiple town hall meetings with law enforcement and the protesters. Some were good, some weren't that good. <laughs> right. But we were able to have these conversations and that's what I'm talking about, coming to the table so that we have these conversations. And even when the uh, protests and things were going on and we had that special session going on, I was on the public safety committee. My godbrother is a state trooper, so I was calling him up. I was calling Sheriff Decatur up. I was calling all these people up. Hey, how would these bills affect y'all? How, you know, how would this go? And for many of them, as we're talking to them, oh, yeah, I'm kind of nervous about it, but I think we could be okay. And even sheriffs would come and testify before the public safety committee saying, if you do this, we will be able to manage this way. Or if you do this, this is a no-go for us. And I want to hear how people talk. I want to hear how people feel. And then I want to bring people to the table, maybe from differing perspectives. And so that's what I loved about it. I remember one of my, I guess I can say this on on, on air, one of my favorite Republicans was Delegate Glenn Davis from Virginia Beach. Oh, Glenn. <laughs> Isn't he a great guy? <laughs> yeah, because we would have these conversations. Like, there would be certain times he would make speeches and it would just, can I say piss me off? He would just piss me off. But then he would see my face after his speech and then he'll come over to my desk. Did I say something wrong, Josh? You know, <laughs> that's exactly yeah. him too. <laughs> and I remember we were uh, during the, we were in session, the General Assembly was shut down, but many of us were in our individual offices in the Pocahontas building. And I guess he saw how my face was all twisted up by something he was saying. And we went on a recess and about 15 minutes later, I hear, nice. And I opened the door as Glenn Davis, like, what's up, Glenn? <laughs> right. <laughs> and so it was the ability to have those conversations. And so talking about how Richmond works, talking about how we foster those conversations, you have to have someone that's cool, calm, and collected. And I tell people this all the time. If you don't have the mental wherewithal to have these conversations, don't do it. Don't do it. Yeah. But I have been blessed and I don't know why God did it, but he gave me this cool, calm spirit and personality to bring all these people together. And don't get me wrong. I do get frustrated. Sometimes I don't want to talk to certain people, <sighs> but I breathe and I know this is the work that I've been called to do. And I believe that that's how we're going to turn this country around is bringing these people together, having these conversations and saying, okay, how can we move forward from here? And that's exactly what we did in Fredericksburg during those 2021 protests. We brought these young people together, the law enforcement together and the elected officials. And we talked about it and we saw what happened. The city worked with the protesters and they gave them an opportunity. They were like, well, you want to protest, but we still got to protect these streets. So you march around, you know, these crosswalks for five minutes, take a break, let traffic come through. They worked together. And I think that's how it's going to happen. Yeah. So would you say it's gotten better even though there's a lot more work to do? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I still think there is work to be done. 
We know that. We believe that. But I think that if we're able to have these conversations like, listen, it's campaign season. So you have some police officers that glare at me. But I know I could call certain police officers, certain sheriffs and just say, hey, let's have this conversation. Let's talk about it. And one sheriff, I won't mention by name because I want to protect his integrity because I like him. One sheriff was like, I hate the campaign season because I know how good of a guy you are. <laughs> but it, it kind of gets back to a common theme. It's better to have bridge builders than bridge burners. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, one, one question I think that's really related to that and, and to your point earlier about housing and community policing, right? How do you see that as a part of your conversation should you, you know, be elected and go to Richmond? The issue of, you know, largely of having... Uh, police officers, fire and safety, teachers, right? All of these like people able to live in the communities that they work in, that housing piece is a huge part of it. Absolutely. Um, I just had a meeting last week with Miss Mary Jones, who's the co-founder of Exodus Family Institute, which focuses on building affordable housing. I think they're doing a big project in King George. And then after that project is completed, they're going to move into the city of Fredericksburg. When I'm talking about affordable housing, I'm not necessarily talking about Section 8 housing. We want to make sure we're calling it what's like workforce housing so that people who are working in an area or people who live in an area can afford to live there as well. And we have a lot of people who live here. And the only way they can afford to live here is because they commute. They work up in Richmond. They work up in D.C. But there should be good paying jobs right here and affordable housing right here so that you can work without doing all those commuting, but then you're an educator who lives down the street from the school. You're our police officer who lives around the corner. And I mean, I can't count how many Prince William County police cruisers I see in Stafford, which is not a bad thing. That's still cool. But even Orange County police cruisers, we want to make sure that those police officers live in that community um, and that they know the people around them. And I think that's key as well. Um, and so doing what we can, I think one of the major issues, I talked to some developers about why it's so expensive to build housing here. And they talk about the antiquated systems to get approval through the localities. So what can we do to cut some of that red tape? Let's modernize the system. Can we do something? And I don't know how it works right now, but can we do something so that it's online and it can get processed faster? And they say a lot of times the cost of housing goes up because they're waiting for approval. They're waiting for shipments. They're waiting for things. So what can we do to cut down on those time frames so that those prices don't skyrocket. Well, a lot of it too is, is like housing density. So the problem isn't so much affordable housing as it is housing scarcity, right? Mm-hmm. We, I mean, the way we've done planning, we have everybody went, I mean, we have this British model of, of, of planning. So we do all these single family homes rather than flats, right? Mm-hmm. So you go to Europe, it's all very dense cities and then a lot of countryside. Here we have these transition zones that go for miles. Yep. And what happens is that like, the, the, the planners, in order to avoid you know small children, because small children cost money and you have mm-hmm. to put them in public education. And so what do we do? Well, we do what we've done in Fredericksburg. It's either 55 plus housing or it's plywood palaces on 10 acre lots because there's fewer children to educate. And then we wonder why it's so expensive for young families to get started or people coming out of university to, to, to live in the communities in which they were raised. So, you can leave the, 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 I mean, that goes right to the planning. And then, of course, we get these, this sprawling effect. And then transportation's got to come right. That's exactly what you're talking about, right? And then we got to go build these you know, multi million dollar roads. Whereas if we had just done it smart the first time and thought of our economies as built on people rather than systems. Imagine that. And I've been begging people. I was like, hey, so uh, I've been running for a while. And I've been begging people. I was like, hey, we are going to boom within the next couple of years. 
let's not be Loudon. Let's not be yes. Alexandria. Let's plan ahead. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and all those things are so connected together, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, it's like, but like density. I mean, there's the old thought like density brings prime and poverty. It's like so you mentioned density. It's like you know the people think Section Eight. That's not the case at all. I mean, if that's really the case, William Street wouldn't look the way it is right now, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that's a huge part of just the housing conversation in general, and what we're trying to do with the regional housing summit that's coming up is reframe that conversation right we know in the city we know in all of our localities that this affordable housing is a pivotal issue right transportation how all of those things really align and the perception that affordable housing is just subsidized housing is not accurate you know so so we're really trying to discuss a lot of those solutions and Hope you'll join us there. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> Good stuff. So, okay, so we come about the end of the evening here. Of course, we have the, the, the one fastball question we promise out of everybody, right? Josh, what are you reading right now? And is it a banned book? We don't know. It's, it's not a banned book. Okay. It's a theological book. <laughs> oh, so then it is a banned book. It's great. Um, it's a book. It's a book called Pentecostal Orthodoxy, and huh. it's actually a book my bishop wrote. Um, and I'm a bad student because it came out about a year ago and I'm just now cracking it open. <laughs> but he's just talking about how uh, Pentecostals can reclaim what's called the ancient faith or historical Christianity and his personal experience with it and other Pentecostals who have been doing it. And so it's a good eye-opening experience. It's a good uh, book that explains certain terms. And um, I'm really enjoying the read. That's awesome. Good for you. Good for you. All right, Megan, we'll start with you. What what you reading, lady? Um, so I'm still reading the Isabel Allende book that I brought up last week. Um, so it's a like a historical fiction novel about um, um, in the Caribbean. So I haven't had a chance to really like dive into it yet. Um, but I started, you know, kind of flipping through the pages, looking forward yeah. to taking some time and unplugging a little bit. So you, you got a housing summit you're trying to kick off. So <laughs> yes. Yes. You're, you're that has, yeah. That's been, I have been also still reading a lot of yeah. housing documents. Right. You're saving America. <laughs> you don't have time for fiction. That's- <laughs> How about you, Sean? What are you reading? Oh, my gosh. What am I reading right now? Um, I'm still reading that Life, Liberty, and Happiness book that I dropped on Marty. Um, it talks about the, na- the, the where that term actually comes from and how it got started in Britain, was transported to America, and then was swiftly Protestantized. Um, um, I got, what was another one I was reading? Oh, it was a little short history on Michael Collins, who's the, the head of the Irish Republican Army in the 20s, 1920s. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of his life and his history and all of that, and sort of the debates on the doll and all that fun stuff, um, which has actually been really interesting, because this is one of those things where the guy was like 29, um, you know, his, his early 30s, and was the first person to defeat the British Empire since George Washington. Wow. Um, yeah, which at the time was quite a feat altogether. So, um, yeah, but yeah, being an Irishman, I like Irish history and, mm-hmm. yeah, love reading that kind of thing. Corey, what are you up to? Since we're asking you what you're reading is typically consists of manuals, but, uh, right. <laughs> but that does mean it doesn't mean that you're not creating awesome art. So, right. what right. are we doing? Oh, well, I'm trying to, uh, I'm like maybe, maybe if, maybe a couple weeks away from, uh, scoring the movie. Oh, that's right. So, so, uh, that, that is, that is around the corner. Um, I'm excited, but also like really scared. (laughs) (laughs) You know, if if that, if that, the the fear emotion isn't there, are you really creating anything? Right. I I would, I would agree that that, that would be the case. You know, if, if you're, if you're, you don't feel anything, 
well, like before you make it, while you're making it, it's like why are you, why are you, why are you doing yeah. it? Why are you even doing it? Yeah, yeah. So it's gonna be awesome. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a film that's been uh, shot here in the Fredericksburg area. So it's, I'm really excited to even. Well, if be you a ever need some BGVs, give me a call. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Did Marty send a uh, like a write in what he's reading this week? That no, he didn't cool. send any write in. He's he's actually he's even fighting disease or something like that. Poor guy. Exactly. Yeah. No. <laughs> he's just out yeah, doing, he's just Marty stuff. doing Marty things conquering the world Marty you're, I know you're going to be listening to this so we're all laughing at your expense yeah. this is what you get for not being here and being in a debate doing reporting things for the for the advance so yeah that's. but next week we expect two books rather than one so that's how we know whether or not he actually listened to the end of it pay the toll Marty that's yeah. right pay the toll <laughs> we miss you and we look forward to hearing both of your books next week indeed <laughs> alright so on behalf of all of us at the New Dominion Podcast this is Sean Kenny with the Republican Standard Marty Davis in absentia from the Fredericksburg Vance. We thank you for joining us and we look forward to joining you again next week.